0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to that passage that was just read, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be completing uh, Romans chapter 1 this morning together. We're continuing our our verse-by-verse study through uh, the book of Romans this morning after having taken uh, a bit of a hiatus due to the coronavirus and um, by the providence of God, uh, here we are at the tail end of Romans chapter 1 this morning. Let me pause for one more word of prayer here before we begin. Father, I come before you and Lord, I I call upon you, Lord, for help in illuminating your word. Lord, it takes your spirit to, uh, Lord, not just intellectually understand these things, but Lord, to grasp them with the heart. We know that your word, Lord, is a double-edged sword, and it cuts deeper than any sword on this earth can cut. Lord, it can cut to the very thoughts, intents, and intents of our heart. Father, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would lay bare our hearts, and in so doing, Father, may the, the way of salvation become clear. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. My kids were in still in elementary school. We lived in a, a neighborhood that had a lot of kids running around. And uh it seemed like there was always a some kind of collectible toy that was collectible, tradable, that was sort of the fad of the neighborhood. And uh my kids were always swept up in that as well. For example, there there were these toys called Beyblades that my boys were really into for a while, and, and what they were was these um, metallic battle tops that you would spin at high speeds in this stadium, and, and your friend would spin one too, and the, the tops would clash into one another, and the goal was for your top to, to be spinning longer than your friend's top, and if, if it did, then you won. Well, I would watch my kids save up their money just to be able to buy one of these battle tops, only to watch with dismay a short time later as they made the, the decision to trade this brand new shiny metal top that they would worked so hard to save for, just trade it away right? because one of their friends offered them a, a, another top that they now decided had a, a cooler name or something like that. And, uh, you know, this used to bug me as, as a dad and um, some of the other dads in the neighborhood, it kind of bugged them too. Uh, sometimes, as dads, we we had to step in and settle some trade disputes from time to time, make sure that the kids weren't ripping each other off too bad, you know. But, you know, it's hard to watch someone that you love get ripped off with a bad trade, isn't it? This is kind of a, a trivial example from my own life, but you know, many times we watch our, our children or we watch other people that we know and love make much more tragic exchanges, don't we? Think of the father and the story of the prodigal son as he watched his son exchange all that he had intended for his son to be uh, security and blessing unto him. He watched him take that, that inheritance early and exchange that in for a short season of of passing pleasure and rebellion. What must God think as he watches the whole world make the tragic exchange of the truth for a lie, of exchanging the knowledge of himself for an idol, what, what must go through God's mind as he watches that take place? You know, last week we, we spent our whole time together discussing the topic introduced here in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, and that is the revelation of God's wrath. That verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We just discussed last week that God's wrath is not like our wrath. His wrath is righteous. So whatever you think about when you think of someone being uh, angry and out of control or capricious in their anger, put that out of your mind. That's not what we're talking about. God is righteous in his wrath. And in fact, you want him to be uh, wrathful towards what is evil, because if he was not angry about what was evil, then he would not be good. And Paul teaches us here that this anger towards all ungodliness and all unrighteousness is apparent, right? It's being revealed, present ten, present continuous tense here, it is being revealed from heaven right now, not just in the future, but now against all ungodliness, and not only is it apparent, but it is urgent, because it is being revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, and that extends certainly to you and to me. It's our greatest need in life. Greatest need isn't some of the, the needs that, that so often are right in our face, our physical needs that, we, that, that are important, that we do think about for, you know, on a daily basis, but our, really our greatest need is a spiritual need because we stand under the wrath of God because of our sin. This is our most urgent need. And now this morning we're going to turn to the, the rest of this passage here where we will see with even greater clarity the reason for God's wrath. The reason for God's wrath is idolatry. You were created by God to worship him. And so the question is not if you are going to worship, but it is who or what you will worship. Primary reason that Paul gives for why the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven is the suppression of the truth the plain truth about his his nature and who he is and the turning instead to worship something that's false to worshipping idols stated simply we make a tragic exchange we exchange god for idolatry and it's not just a bad exchange it is tragic We have access to the gloriously true knowledge of God. That's what Paul says here in verses 19 and 20. I'm just going to reread those verses here. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You know, God's fingerprints are all over His creation, aren't they? I mean, when you look out at what He has made, there there is beauty, right? There is complexity. There is design. I was watching this nature documentary just this past Friday night, and in that documentary, they were talking all about the dolphin. And they were just breaking down the ability that the the dolphin has to use echolocation, and they were showing you the different organs inside of the dolphin's head to be able to make the clicking noise that it makes to be able to send that sound in a cone shape out in front of itself as it swims, and then as that sound bounces off the fish it's hunting and and comes back, the the dolphin has all kinds of receptors to be able to receive that information, and its brain translates it into an image of a fish that's even textured. Just incredible. The, the design and the complexity of, of God's creation. And that's just one of His creatures. And that's just one aspect of one of His crea- creatures. It's amazing. God's glory is literally blaring out in high definition, 24-7, declaring the glory of God through His creation. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. There is a glorious light of knowledge about God that is available to all people. It doesn't matter if you live in the deepest, darkest jungle somewhere and you can't even read or write, or if you live in some sophisticated city and have a Ph.D. It doesn't matter. The information is there. The, The revelation is there of God and who he is. There's no excuse. It's so plain. We have access to it. But the problem is here. Uh, And and Paul talks about this in verse 18 and verse 21, that we suppress the truth of that, that plain truth. The problem isn't that God's message isn't getting through. The problem is that it is getting through, but we stuff it down, right? We, We drive it down, we suppress it into our subconscious and try not to think about it. Paul says here in in verse 18 that men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so when you stand before God someday, you're not going to be able to play like you didn't know. The truth about God is, is so plain in his creation that you will be without excuse. And yet, We prefer something else, don't we? Look at verse 21. 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The appropriate, clear-headed response to the revelation of God just in his creation alone is that you might honor him and, and give thanks to him. You know, Jesus said that the greatest commandment that sums up all of uh, of the law and the prophets is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the clear-headed response is to honor God, to thank Him, and, and even to love Him. But instead of giving Him the love, honor, and thanks that He deserves, Paul says people become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened the heart is referring here to the very center of your being where you think and where you feel and where you make decisions and paul is talking here about suppressing suppressing the truth at that very core center of who you are in your heart and when When you do that, when you suppress the truth about God and you deny it, this brings an indescribable spiritual darkness to the entirety of your being. It casts a long shadow. It clouds your thinking and and casts a long shadow over all of your thinking, over all your decisions. And this cloudy thinking, this darkness is illustrated especially by the tragic exchange that we then make in the suppression of this truth. And that is we exchange the the glorious truth about God for the lie of idolatry. Paul says in verses 22 and 23 here, that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and even creeping things. You know, it doesn't matter how loudly you proclaim yourself to be wise in this matter. It, it cannot cover up the foolishness of this particular trade-in. Think about it. Instead of worshiping the, the glorious, immortal God and, and taking the knowledge of, of him that's available to you in, the cre- in, in creation, we turn instead to worshiping what is by comparison common and mortal. We worship the creation rather than the creator. How foolish can we be? I wish I had time this morning to read to you Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. If you get a chance later today, I recommend you go back and and read that. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. My Bible entitles that section of Scripture the folly of idolatry. It's just a a, a wonderful passage of Scripture to read to understand uh, God's perspective on the foolishness of, of this particular sin. But in that passage, Isaiah describes the foolishness of a person who cuts down a tree and then uses half of the log to cook his supper. And then uses the other half of the log to carve an an idol and then bows down to it and worships it and and cries out to it, deliver me. It's a picture of our foolishness, of our, our idolatry, how foolish it is to worship the creation rather than the creator. And this image here in Isaiah would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Look at verse 25 here. Paul says the same thing, only in a a different way here. He says, they exchanged the the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's almost like Paul can't (laughs) pass over talking about the Lord without, without blessing his name. People would rather worship a lie than face the truth of their accountability to their creator. We would rather fashion a God to be after our own image or after our own liking than to accept the truth of God as he has revealed it to be in in his creation. What what a deception. What a, a darkness. You know, for, for some people, the, the application of this section of Scripture is, is very literal, right? Get rid of your idols, right? Don't keep them in the closet for a rainy day. Don't hang on to them. Don't consult them in any way. Get rid of them. They're false. It's the creation. It's not the creator. There is only one creator, God, and he won't abide with any Rivals. So get rid of your idols. God has said, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image to worship and to serve. It's the second commandment. Neither can you capture the Immortal, invisible, all-glorious, supreme God in an image. You're not to try to capture him in an image and then bow down to that image. God doesn't like that. He doesn't want it. The only authorized image of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, the tragic exchange of the truth for False idols can be reversed. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 where Paul describes the Thessalonians and how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Such a wonderful thing. In Jesus Christ, you can reverse the tragic exchange. Maybe you're you're saying right now, you know, I don't know why you're spending so much time talking about this. I I really don't struggle with idolatry uh, and I never have. Maybe you're saying that. Maybe you would even describe yourself as an atheist, someone who doesn't even believe there is a God. You think you don't worship any God, let alone an idol. I think G.K. Chesterton said it well when he said, when men When man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing, but worships everything. (laughs) The human heart is made to worship and worship you will. Maybe you won't bow down to an actual statue. Maybe you, you see that as being primitive. But what about the idols of your own heart? talking about things like money, sex, power, success, even things like food or, or family or even friends. Tim Keller rightly said that an idol is, quote, anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. Right? If you step back and you define idolatry in that way, well then we have many idols, don't we? John Calvin said that the human heart is like an idol factory. And even an unbeliever like Friedrich Nietzsche said there are more idols in the world than there are realities we suppress the truth and we turn to idols of our own making and we do it instinctively like right? even if we're not even aware that that we've done it right the default is not to worship the one true god who has made you because of of sin because of the fall right we we rebelled against God and, and, and we said, I'll go my own way, thank you very much and if there's nothing else that fills that void in your heart, then you'll fill it with yourself. Worship yourself. And So you see, this, this does apply to you. It applies to each one of us. We've all done it. We've all suppressed the truth. We've all supplanted God, the knowledge of God, for lesser things. And the wrath of God burns against this tragic and foolish exchange and I hope you feel that. Paul goes on to say here that the result of our idolatry is that God gives us up to our sin. A.W. Tozer said in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Why is it so important what you think about God? And Tozer goes on to say essentially that whatever you think about God, you will never rise above your conception of him. When we exchange the glory of the knowledge of God for the spiritual darkness of a lie, we exchange the knowledge of God for idolatry, that is an exchange that pollutes the entirety of our existence. In fact, Paul says that the result of our tragic exchange of God for idols is that God gives us up to our sin. And the interesting thing is that this giving up to our sin is, in, in many senses, the judgment. It is the first taste of the judgment. It is the first result of God's wrath. You know, we often picture God's wrath as a, a clap of thunder and a lightning bolt coming down and, and zapping the wayward soul. And if you look at at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelations, there, there is a coming day where God will step in and he will make everything that's wrong right in that sort of a way. We call it the day of the Lord. But we rarely consider what Romans 1 is teaching us here, that many times God's wrath is revealed in this. He gives us what we want. God gives us over to the destruction that we ourselves have chosen. And his wrath is revealed in that. Paul says that God gave them up three times in this passage. And I really think the first two times in verse 24 and and verse 26 really overlap in what he's talking about here. Look at verse 24. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then look at the beginning of, of verse 26. He says something very similar. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? So the first giving up here that, that Paul is talking about is a, a being given up to impurity and dishonorable passions. And I'm certain here that Paul has in mind all sorts of of immorality, but he zeroes in on homosexuality in particular here in verses 26 and 27. You see, we make another subsequent tragic exchange after idolatry. We exchange natural sexual desire for unnatural desire in the form of, of homosexuality. Why does, why does Paul pick on this particular sin in particular? I, I don't know all the reasons. But I, I can say, I can notice here that Paul in this particular section of Romans chapter 1 is slowly building a case for the, the total depravity of all people. Or rather, not just in chapter 1, but in, in chapter 1 and extending clear through chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul's building the case for the the total depravity of of all people, both Gentiles and Jews. And here in this section, in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, Paul is sort of listing the conspicuous sins of the Gentiles, right? Things like, like idolatry and homosexuality. And I can just picture, as this letter is being read in, in Rome, I can just picture the Jewish Christians sort of amening and saying, you tell them, Paul, you tell them about that depravity, you tell them about that idolatry and about that homosexuality and that perversion. And all, all the while, they, maybe they're not expecting the turn that Paul's going to make in chapter 2, uh, beginning in verses 1 through 18, where Paul's going to turn on the sins of the religious people, on the self-righteous, on the Jews. All on the way to, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, concluding that the whole human race is depraved and has, has absolutely no righteousness in and of themselves. The whole goal of this larger chunk of Scripture is to stop every mouth from boasting and to lay bare our own personal pitiful righteousness for what it is. So that we might wake up to our need for a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness from God outside of ourselves that we receive entirely by faith. And so I suspect that's one of the reasons why Paul zooms in here on this particular sin. But you you gotta keep in mind the the big picture here. And and look what Paul says. He says, uh, halfway through verse 26, he says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I just have a a couple, three observations, a couple, three things I want to say about these verses. And the first thing is this, that when Paul speaks here, he's speaking comprehensively. He's speaking comprehensively. He's speaking here about all homosexual desire and practice, right? This isn't just some pocket of deviant practice within homosexuality. No, he's including both gay and lesbian behavior in the most general terms possible. It's comprehensive. Secondly, Paul states, I think, very clearly here that that homosexual activity is against God's created design. You know, people try to explain this text away by saying that what Paul meant here when he said that it wasn't natural, they they take that word natural to be something subjective to the person. So, as in, if if you happen to be heterosexual in your sexual orientation, then you should do what's natural to you. You should do what's usual to you, right? That's the right thing for you to do. And if you are by nature homosexual, then you should do what is natural to you, so they say. That's how they try to to reframe this word natural here. And, And the sin comes in, they say, when someone who by nature is one sexual orientation, crosses that line of their natural desires and pursues what is unnatural to them. And so they would argue that someone who is oriented towards homosexual desire, that it would be wrong for them to deny that and to instead pursue heterosexual desire. But that's not at all what Paul means here. It's not at all. It's a twisting of the scriptures. What the scriptures so plainly have said and the way that they've been interpreted for millennia. This word here, natural, is not subjective. Rather, Paul means natural in in the natural sense, in the literal, objective sense, that homosexual behavior is not natural. It is not God's creative design. God's design is this: one man one woman for one lifetime, and his design is good, and anything that deviates from his design, whether it be a a heterosexual perversion of that design or a homosexual perversion of that design, it doesn't matter. Both are wrong. Both are sin. Anything outside of God's good design is sin, including what, what Paul is describing here. And, and thirdly, I, I would just say here that I want you to notice that Paul grounds this in not in the culture, but in creation itself. That means this doesn't change with the ever-shifting tides of culture. In other words, God doesn't get woke on this matter and suddenly realize that that this standard is antiquated. Yeah, I I maybe meant that back in the Old Testament times and maybe even in the New Testament times, but really now I see clearly. Thank you. Thank you, people, for looking into the biology of this and, and informing me. If only God would understand the biology a little bit better, we think. But no, Paul grounds this not in cultural understanding not even in scientific understanding but in God's created design and in the commands of God himself God said it was wrong plain and simple and so how should we view this how should we talk about this subject a pastor professor uh, of that I'm uh, from my seminary days uh, his name is is Tony Marita has been particularly helpful to me in this regard. And, and he sort of helped me organize my, my thinking uh, along three, in three different categories here. And um, I have to give credit to him here that most of what I'm going to say here in response to this is either taken directly or indirectly from his writing on this topic. And Tony Morita, he, he gives three categories. He says that we should think about this in the category of sin, category of the gospel, and the category of the church. So let's take those one by one here. First, let's view this in light of the doctrine of, of sin. Homosexual acts are sinful, and we must not cave into our culture's pressure to say otherwise. When the Bible has spoken so clearly about it, we, we must not just blow, be blown and tossed by, by the cultural wins on this issue however in in the same breath we we must also be quick to point out that god is opposed to all sin right he doesn't just have some special fury reserved for this one particular sin no god's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness all unrighteousness we've been talking about that all along here this is just one particularly in your face example that paul uses and he's about to give a, a laundry list of various vices in the very next paragraph that, that he could have very well given equal treatment to. But he decides to list them instead like a, a laundry list. Plus, as I've already said, you should stick around. Paul is just about to in the very next chapter. He's about to turn a corner and he's going to start poking at the sins of self-righteous religious people in the next chapter. So stick around. Stick around. Tony Morita said helpfully and I'm going to quote him here directly he said the reasons for homosexual attraction are complex we can acknowledge that right and those reasons include biology and biography sort of it's sort of the 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 question is it nature or is it nurture right i think we can acknowledge that it's complex it includes both biology and biography as well as spiritual brokenness, but Paul is really plain that acting on those desires is an offense to God. In other words, you know, you know, we live in a broken, sin-cursed world where our bodies sometimes don't feel what they're supposed to feel, right? Sometimes we don't respond to things the way that we should, but that's still no excuse for sin. Whether those sinful desires are, are homosexual desires Heterosexual lusts, a longing after drunkenness or, or gluttony or a penchant for depression or anxiety. We have all these, these sinful desires in our flesh that, that wage war against us and constantly wanting to be expressed, but we must say no. It doesn't matter what that desire is. If it's wrong, if God has said that it was, it's wrong, then we are to deny ourselves and to put it off not to act them out tony marita continues he says quote to someone who is a believer with same sex attraction know that this is a sin you must fight just like the sins in verses 28 through 32 must be fought by other believers it will be hard to fight and one that will require a lot of grace And a lot of love and support and prayers from the Christian community. But that's how we all fight temptation. And that's discipleship, denying self, taking up a cross and following Jesus. End quote. So we want to be clear about this, right? As we view this through the lens of the doctrine of sin. Secondly, we want to view this in light of the hope of the gospel. I implore you to believe Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that says that the gospel is the power of God and for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God to overcome the power of sin, even particularly uh, powerful sins, right? The, the cross is more powerful. Believe the gospel. Believe in the power of God and the power of God in and through Jesus Christ in particular to set captives free from their sin. And Let me encourage you to put your hope in Him unto that day, regardless of whatever sin it is you're struggling with. The gospel has the power to change you. And if not, if God has ordained that you are to struggle with some particular temptation the rest of your life, then the gospel has the power to sustain you in it. We all have, have indwelling sin. We all have struggles and temptations that, that we may struggle with the rest of our life. But let those struggles drive us to our knees in dependence upon God and in belief in, the, in the, the power of the gospel. You don't have to take my word for it in, in this particular issue. There are some great resources available for you to hear directly from those who have and, and maybe are struggling with this. I, I can commend two resources to you this morning. First one is written by a guy named Sam Alberry, and it's a, just a, a small little book called uh, Is God Anti-Gay? And he shares a little bit of his own struggle with that and then also upholds the biblical teaching on that in a a very winsome way. And then secondly, in fact, if I could only recommend to you one resource, you've got to get your hands on a copy of this book here by Rosaria Butterfield. It's her uh, conversion testimony, and the name of the book is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And let me tell you, if you are seeking to minister to to, to someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, uh, you you need to get your hands on a copy of this book and understand the struggle from the inside out. Um, so let me commend that to you. They, the, these sorts of resources are growing year by year. They're great resources of, of Christians who experience this temptation and yet are are ex- also experiencing the power of the gospel to overcome it. So I just... I commend at least these two resources to you if you need some more information. And keep in mind here that there were people in the early church who were former practicing homosexuals. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the righteous, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and that's the most, one of the most general terms for sexual immorality that you can have, the word porneia, the hope of the gospel. Thirdly, we can view it in light of the church's mission to blend both truth and love. Tony Marita says that we must not cave in and, and change our position as a church, but on the other hand, we also must not alienate people with a lack of Compassion. Right? We are to hold the truth, but we are to hold it with love. Tim Keller said once that churches should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. You know in a job interview you put on your best and you put on your best face? By contrast, when you're sitting in that waiting room at the doctor, you're all sick and broken and you know it. And It doesn't matter how you get there, but you get there because you need help. Jesus said that those who are are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I I came not to call the righteous, by that he means the self-righteous, but he came to call sinners like you and like me. And so we should have the attitude here at our church that we are all just sick sinners waiting on the great physician for healing, forgiveness, and strength. And so Paul has given us, uh, in this example here of homosexuality, an example of God uh, giving us up to our sin as an act of judgment, to our impurities and, and dishonorable passions. But he's not done. He goes on here in verses 28 through 31 to to give this laundry list, a vice list here. And as I said, all sin is sin to God. And not only does he give sinners over to things like homosexuality, but he also includes here a a long list of things that plague us individually and as a society. Let's just read these things. Look at beginning in verse 29. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Right? You could just go on. So, A laundry list of, of the things that flow out of our depraved hearts. And there's something... Here for all of us, isn't isn't there? I mean, even the, even for kids, disobedient to parents. Paul doesn't even stop there. In verse thirty-two, he goes on to take this even one step further, and I'll close with this. Not only do people, not only do we in our our sinfulness. Do these sorts of things, but we actually become recruiters and cheerleaders for others to join us in it. Look what Paul says. He says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul closes this chapter by saying that not only do people do these things, but uh, and not only do they know that it's wrong and that it deserves judgment, Uh, But they also give hearty approval to those who practice these sorts of things. You know, misery loves company, doesn't it? And when you're feeling guilty about something that you've done wrong, there's nothing quite like looking around and seeing how many people are also doing the same exact thing or trying to recruit more people to join you so you don't feel so alone in your guiltiness. It's not not enough here to just do these things. We, We want people to affirm us in it. We demand it, in fact. We want others to join us in it. We become cheerleaders in evil behavior in hopes that public opinion will begin to swing in our favor and justify us in our sins. But folks, let me tell you, it's not me or anyone else whose opinion truly matters that you need to be concerned about. What you need to be concerned about is the approval of Almighty God. And this is his word. If you have a a bone to pick with it, take it up with God. This This is his word and it's his opinion that matters, not mine. And God's word is warning us all here that God is righteously furious with us about our sin. We have suppressed the truth And we have exchanged it for a lie. We have even worshipped, created things rather than the creator. And we, therefore, have been given over to our sin. And we have felt the emptiness and the darkness of it. All of us. But God has arranged for us a better exchange. God is willing to exchange your punishment for Christ's reward. You can extre- exchange the lie for the truth today. And in so doing, you can flood your heart, at the very center of your being with indescribable light. Let's pray.